0: You're listening to a Sunday morning message from Hope Church, Frankfurt. If you want more information about our church, text HOPE23 to 55498. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Hey, we're going to be in John chapter 7, wrapping up this series called Come and See. And as I was preparing today, I feel like the the Lord gave me a specific word for you all that I'm really excited to, to release to you and Let me just pray really quick as you're turning there in your scriptures. Lord, as it's already been said, we we want your word today. We want your word more than anything. Lord, I thank you for how dynamic your voice is, Lord, that your voice is not like human voice, like, like the human intellect, Lord Jesus. It is so much higher than that. Lord, when you speak, things are created within us. Lord, when you speak, there is life where there was death. Lord, when you speak, there is strengthening, encouragement, and comfort all at the same time. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak today in this place, Lord. Lord, I empty myself out before you, and I ask, Lord, just to be a vessel for you to speak and move in this place. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you right now into this place. We thank you for your ministry. We thank you that you abide with your body, and when your body comes together, this is the best time of the week for you, because you love being among your church, so we just thank you for that. We pray all these things in your powerful name, amen. I just want to give some introductory remarks on John. I'm sure you all have covered a lot of this already. But the gospel of John is a very unique gospel. It stands apart from the rest. The the other three gospels are often referred to as the synoptic gospels because they pull a lot of information from each other and have a lot of overlaps with each other. But John's gospel is very unique from the other ones because John's gospel, first off, omits a lot of things that you find in the synoptic gospels. But then it also has things that we don't find in the synoptic gospels. But I think probably one of the most interesting things about John's gospel is the way that he orders the events. He's very intentional and very, I would even say, abstract and artistic in the way that he orders the events of his gospel. He's making sure that he's going to make a theological point to the reader's that that come in contact with his testimony about king Jesus. He also right from the start of the gospel comes out and tells us what his point is throughout the whole thing. In John chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 John says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And on every single page of John's gospel, this is the story that plays out over and over and over again. The creator of the universe King Jesus is standing before his creation and his creations like you're just a Jew from Galilee that's all they can see him as you're just a carpenter you're just Joseph's son you're just someone who came from an illegitimate birth because let's be honest you got a girl walking around saying I'm pregnant but I don't know how this happened a lot of people question that that's all Jesus was to them he was the creator but His creation did not recognize him. So I want to pick up in John 7 verse 1 here and just kind of go verse by verse for part of this and lay out the situation that we find ourselves in. If you look at the first verse with me, it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Jesus was a wanted man. If they had wanted man posters, he would have been on the one in the temple. He was a wanted man. And you know what? He did something so egregious, he healed somebody. How dare he, right? How dare he think he can just go around and heal people? In John chapter 5, Jesus heals an invalid man. It says that he came, he came up to the pool of Bethesda where a lot of uh, people that were crippled and maimed and, 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 and they were considered invalids, even in that story, the man, we never given his name. He's just called the, the invalid man. Uh, and Jesus even dignifies him by calling him just the man, not the invalid man. Um, and, and they would all gather around this pool and they would wait for the water to be stirred so that they can get in and be healed. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that apparently people got healed by getting in that water when it was stirred. I don't quite understand what that is. I don't know how that happened or what it is. But all I know is that there's a reason why all these people, this man was crippled for 38 years. Clearly he had seen some things that made him want to stay around that pool. So anyways, Jesus shows up to this pool. He hears about this specific man, and he heals him. And he tells him specifically, get up, take your mat, and walk. And that offended some religious leaders because he was carrying his mat On the Sabbath. And so there's this hatred that grows for Jesus from the religious leaders because of what he had done when they finally figure out who he is. They were convicted that he had broken God's law, and so they had sought to kill him, and Jesus was well aware of that threat. So he actually avoids that entire region for months. Because the last time he was there was during a religious festival. So we know from timing the fact that it's coming up on another religious festival. You can, you can map out, he, it's probably about six months, seven months that he avoided that entire region. Because he knew that they were looking to kill him. So let's look at verses 2 through 5. It says, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So as I mentioned, the last time he was in Judea was during one of the Jewish festivals. He heals the man, but now it's come time for what's called the, the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths. And this festival was specifically to commemorate God's faithfulness to the Israelite nation when they were in the wilderness. Because when they were in the wilderness, they traveled in tabernacles, in tents, in booths little side note, uh, in John 1, when Jesus says, I came and dwelled among you, uh, that literally means I came and tabernacled among you. That's what he put on flesh. He, he lived in the tent of, of human flesh. He came and tabernacled. So anyways, this festival was to go to commemorate God's faithfulness in this, this time. And what you need to understand is that Jesus' brother's request of him was not unreasonable. Because it was common to travel in large groups, especially with family members and close neighbors and friends, to these festivals. So this would have been a common thing. This would be like going to church on Sunday morning with your family. It's like, hey, come on, let's get in the car together. It was, that, it was just like that. Come on, this is what we do. We're going to go to the festival together. But Jesus, he ends up telling them that he is not going. Now, funny story, maybe you remember this. There's not, there's not many stories about Jesus between his birth and all the way up to his initiation in a ministry when he was around 30 years old. We only get one story of what happened, something that happened in the middle. It's when he's 12 years old. I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke that tells that story. And it says that when he went to the festival, that it took a few days for his family to realize that he didn't come back with them. Now, many of you would think, oh, they're terrible parents. How could they not realize that Jesus was not with them? Why? Because it proves what we're talking about here, they traveled in massive groups. So they assumed Jesus had to be with his brothers or cousins or whatever. So that's why it took them a few days to realize the fact that he wasn't there at all because they traveled in groups. Okay, so verses 6 through 9. It says, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that it works. its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus is saying not only, he doesn't tell them that, hey, they're trying to kill me, but he alludes to it in the sense he says, they hate me because I call out their evil. They hate me because I call out their evil. And Jesus was clearly, he was a little bit afraid. And we know that Jesus experienced fear because even before he went to the cross, it says that he was so stressed out that he sweat drops of blood because of what he knew was coming. And in the same way, we see kind of like a, a foreshadowing of that in this moment. Jesus is afraid because he knows that if he goes, he could be killed. But the interesting thing is he says, my time has not come yet. My time has not come yet. It actually even has uh, resemblances of, of, sorry, I'm like nerding out on you guys now with all these little cross-references, but it has these uh, resemblance of uh, John 2 with the the wedding of Cana when his mother comes up to him and tells him to to take care of the problem of wine, and he says, my time has not come yet. Someone makes a request and then he says, my time's not coming. Same thing's happening here with his, his brothers. And Jesus understands that there's a timeline for his glorification, though. That's why he says, it's not my time yet. He already knows there's something coming in the, in the near future, but it's not supposed to happen yet. And it's, it's directly tied to him possibly being killed. So let's cap this off, verses 10 through 11 here. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? So kind of interesting. Jesus first says, "Now I'm not going with you guys. So they they pack up, they get their peanut butter and jellies in their sack, ready to go, and they start going off to the festival. But then it says Jesus decides that he's going to go. So what exactly happened? Did Jesus lie to his brothers? No, I don't think that's what happened. I think that Jesus trusted the Father's timing. Jesus trusted the Father's timing. You see, Scripture doesn't show us how this came about, but somewhere in between the conversation that he had with his brothers and his decision to go, somewhere in there, he had to have prayed. He had to have spent time with his Father because he decides to go. And I think that we can find ourselves in this a little bit because we see this contrast of him not wanting to go but then him going out of obedience to the father because he was trusting the father's timeline and oftentimes we come across things in our lives when we don't want to do it if we're honest with ourselves we do not want to do it if it's only my experience, then there must be something wrong with me. Because I can tell you plenty of times in my life when God has told me to go and do something. And I have gone to my bedroom, shut the door, and pouted before him because I didn't want to do it. Because I didn't want to be obedient to him. Because I was afraid of what would happen. I was afraid of what the cost would be. I was uncomfortable with what it was going to require of me. We often don't want to go when we even sense that God is telling us that it's time. And it can come from a multitude of reasons. It can come because we feel like we're not prepared for it. Oh, this can't! How many people in scripture, let's just think about this. How many people in scripture did God call and then they met God with all these excuses as to why they were not the one? God of the universe, you must be talking to the wrong person. It can't be me that you're sending to go save the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh. It can't be me. Oh, it can't. Are you sure it's not one of these six men, these seven men right here? Are you sure you're not anointing one of them to be king? Oh, no, it's the one you want that's out in the field. Are you sure? Are you sure you're seeing right? We feel like we're not prepared for what's ahead. Or we are in fear. We get paralyzed because of the unknown. We get paralyzed because of the unknown. Or we get comfortable. We like it where we are at. Or people around us are telling us, and these are well-intentioned people, but they are contradicting unknowingly what God has told us to do. So now we have contradicting voices that we have the Father telling us one thing, but then people that are full of wisdom telling us something different. So we don't want to go. Let me share something with you about this, and I hope this encourages your faith. And the quicker you learn this, I think the quicker you'll find that you could step into what God has for you on a consistent basis. God will often tell you to go when you are least prepared to do it. The reason why he does this is because if you had the ability to do it, then you would take the glory for doing it. So he often kicks you out when you know you don't have the ability so that when it happens, you go back and shut your door and you say, God, I'm giving you the glory because I know for a fact that wasn't me. I know for a fact I could not have done that. But you know what that requires of you? It requires you stepping out when you don't want to do it. It requires you stepping out when others are telling you not to do it, but you know your father is telling you to do it. And here's the amazing thing about that process is that that's actually how God grows you. He matures you not beforehand. He matures you during the process. He says, go first. Go when you're anxious. Go when you don't want to do it. Go when you feel unprepared. And when you stay obedient to me, I will mature you and grow you in the process. Does that make sense to you guys? God's timing will not make sense either to you or to other people. It's often completely illogical. I mean, let's just think about this from the standpoint of what happened with Jesus right here. It was completely logical to expect him to go with his family and to go with his brothers and everybody else. That was the logical timing of what should have happened. But then Jesus, he's on a different timetable. He's not on the timetable of the Jewish customs. He's not on the timetable of his family. Someone needs to hear that today. He's not on the timetable of the well-meaning people around him. He's on the timetable of his father. And it's not always going to make logical sense. Sometimes you need to do things that don't make sense to people around you. When your friends are saying, why are you staying back? It's a Friday night. Let's go out and hang out. Let's go out and have fun. And you say, I can't go out tonight. Because the real reason is you're spending time with your father. You're spending time in the Bible. You're spending time in prayer. It's not going to make logical sense to other people but you're committed to trusting the Father's timing. And I'm going to give you one more bonus just on this. For every area of safety in your life, there's also a correlating area that's a threat to you. Because Jesus had an area of safety in Galilee, but he also had an area of unrest and threatening uh, behavior towards him in Judea. Where did he end up going? I'm just going to leave it at that. just going to leave it at that. So Jesus, he finally arrives in Judea. He says that he's going to go, and he goes in secret. And he arrives halfway through the festival. He shows up late to the party, let's just say that. And when he gets there, there's all these murmurs that are going on, uh, going around about this man named Jesus. And some are saying that he's he's a deceiver. Oh, he just deceives people. But some are saying that uh, he's a good man because they've probably seen his ministry. They may have even been around when he healed the man at the, the Pool of Bethesda. And so they're saying, Oh, he's a good man. I've seen what he has done, but no one's calling him the Messiah. So Jesus does what any rabbi would do at a festival. He begins teaching in the temple courts. Uh, at these festivals, everyone would go to the temple courts, it would have been packed, it would have been like, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And everyone would be, all these rabbis would be teaching so Jesus would have begun to do that very same thing. And while he was teaching, people started asking, how is this dude so smart? Where is he getting this from? We've never heard this before. Where is this wisdom coming from? Why is he so smart? And Jesus responds to them. He says, my teaching is not my own. My teaching is not my own. Jesus is breaking the news to them that he has, in fact, been taught by somebody, but he wasn't taught by other rabbis, because that's typically how it would go. A rabbi would teach you something, and then that rabbi would teach another rabbi something, and it would just become this big cycle of wisdom going around and around and around. So they were hearing things they had never heard before, and they're thinking, what rabbi did you get this? What school did you go? What university did you go to 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 learn these things? You're saying, I didn't get it from any of those places. They didn't get it from any of those rabbis. And the crowd is essentially accusing him of something. They're saying, you're making all this stuff up. You're making all this stuff up. There's no credible source that you can point to to tell us where you got this from. So Jesus says that it came from the one who sent him. Now, you need to understand, in this context, there, there was this dynamic where It's pretty much like, uh, I'll put it here's a modern day analogy. If the postman dropped a bill off at your door that was wrongly billed to you, would it be appropriate for you to argue with the postman about you being billed incorrectly? No, because the postman is just delivering the mail to you. That problem has to be taken up with the one that it actually came from. And Jesus is saying, Look, I'm just a messenger. Someone has given this to me, and he says it's the one that you know not of, and I'm just the messenger. Why are you hating on me? I'm just saying what the Father told me to say. But that's precisely what they were doing. So let's look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. I love the simplicity of what Jesus says here. He says, guys, I'm not going to argue with you about this. I'm not going to argue with you about where my teaching came from. I've already told you that it's come from a credible source, but you refuse to believe me. So he says, instead of arguing about this, I'm going to give you something to do. He says, why don't you just try it out for yourself? Why don't you just try the Father's will out for yourself? And I love the simplicity of it." And that's something I want to bring to you today. Why don't you just try God's will out and see what happens in your life? Maybe you are questioning. Maybe if you're in this place, you're questioning, is this really the truth? I've, I've, I've seen a lot of stuff on Instagram lately and TikTok and Facebook about all these other ways that people are experiencing peace in their life. And, and I've heard other people talking about what truth is. And I'm questioning, is this really the only way or are there other ways to get to the truth? And I think you should take the approach that Jesus lays out, is that if you're in that position, why don't you just try God's will out and see what happens? Because it seems to me Jesus was pretty confident that he knew exactly what would happen if someone just tried it out, I love the confidence of Jesus. I'm not going to argue about it, but how about you just give it a try and see what happens? Because he knew how that story was going to end. See, typically we invert the process. We want the proof first, and then we say, okay, I'll believe after I get it. I want this to make sense first, and then I will follow in faith, as you say, afterwards. But Jesus inverts it. He says, how about you try it first, and then maybe you'll find the clarity will come afterwards. And maybe that's a word for us today. Try it first, and then the clarity will come afterwards. Just step out in faith first. You know, God's will is a choice that you have to consciously make on a day-to-day basis. I wish it was something that would just automatically happen, like all of a sudden, boom, you just have faith. It just come out of nowhere. You just wake up one morning, all of a sudden you got all this faith. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says here that you have to choose. He says, choose to do God's will. Choose to do God's will. And that's what we have to do today. We have to choose. Let me just give you a few examples of of times that I think it's healthy for us to choose to do God's will. Here's one right now. Try out forgiving when you don't want to do it. Try out forgiving when you don't want to do it. This is a, hey, God, I don't get it. I'm hurt right now because of what happened. I'm feeling a type of way about what happened, but I'm going to choose to do God's will because that's what you've told me to do. I'm going to do it anyways. Hey, here's another one. Try to pray for an amount of time you've never prayed for before. Maybe for you, 30 minutes is like "That's, that's a lot of time. I can usually hit 10, 15 minutes. I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna challenge you today. Why don't you try to push into the 30 minute range one time? What, what's the hurt in trying? What's the hurt in trying? Why not try to go for an hour sometime? What's the hurt in trying? Here's another one, and I promise you, Jeff did not ask me to say this, but I'm just, as a pastor, I'm gonna put this out to you. Try to give money when money's tight. Try to step out in faith because this is not about a financial thing. What this is about is a faith thing. This is about saying, God, I'm going to trust you when it doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to trust you when the pocketbook is really tight right now. I'm going to do your will and step out. Those are just a few examples that I wanted to give to you. So let's start bringing this thing to a close here. People start to, they start to figure out who Jesus is. Can I point out something comedic to you? At the beginning of when Jesus got there, it says the religious officials, they were looking out for Jesus. It says they were explicitly looking for Jesus. But he goes multiple days teaching in the temple courts and they don't even realize it's him. Again, what was John's thesis at the beginning of the gospel? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. They literally could not recognize Jesus, and they were looking for him. This is the, the, the comedic edge of John, the one you're looking for you can't even find because you walk in unbelief. Everyone in this world is looking for Jesus. They don't even realize it. Every single person that walks on this earth has a desire for Jesus, but their unbelief, their pride, their resistance, and their bowing to other idols refuses to let them come to the one they're actually looking and seeking for. So Jesus makes it all the way to the last day. No one's tried to kill him yet. He makes it to the last and greatest day. And it says that although the pressure is on Jesus because he knows that they're, they're now going to start coming after him because they've figured out who he is, he gets to the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason why this is significant is because on this last and final day, it was a day of intercession. It was a day of intercession. And what they were hoping was they wanted God to burst forth from the temple and, and they would cite, and I'm going to read them here, they would cite these uh, prophetic scriptures from the Old Testament about God uh, bursting forth from the temple. A river that would run down and give life to all of the world. So what these priests would do is they would actually go back and forth from the pool, the pool of Bethesda. And they would carry buckets of water. They would carry it into the temple and they would splash the water down at the base of the altar. Basically, I'm not sure if they were trying to like, if this was just intercession or if they were trying to initiate something or get something to to happen. But this is what they would do. And it was a prophetic act, as I've mentioned. But this is something else that they would do is that they would read these these scriptures. Now, before I read these scriptures, I want to point out something that Jesus has done in the past. Maybe you remember this. This is, I believe, in Luke chapter 4. Um, when Jesus is one day, he's in the the, uh, the temple, and it says that the, the book of Isaiah was read. And it was that scripture, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. You know that scripture? So that was read. And then it says Jesus pops up, and he says... Among you today, this scripture is fulfilled, all right? So there's a public reading of scripture, and then Jesus stands up, and he says, this scripture is fulfilled among you today. So we know that Jesus has done this before in the past. Now, I want you to hear this scripture from Zechariah 14, 8 through 9, because it's believed this was the scripture they would read on this last and final day, and it has direct reference to them pouring a- a water on the altar. Listen to this. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord in his name, the only name. So that's the scripture that's read. Okay? So I want you to picture this. That's on everyone's mind. And then this man pops up. He's been working in secret. And he pops up and it says in a loud voice, this is John 7, 37 to 38, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What does Jesus do? He hijacks the situation. He hijacks the tradition that they've been doing for years and years and years. They've heard this scripture on the last day of this festival every single year of their life, but this time it's read and Jesus stands up and he says, This is fulfilled today in me, just like he did with Isaiah 61. See, Jesus had a habit of hijacking situations because he knew this is about me. Jesus is the source of eternal life. What did he convict the Pharisees of doing? He said you look in scripture thinking that in them you have eternal life but it's actually found in me and he's giving them an opportunity right here saying you've just heard this scripture but you need to know that it's a prophecy about me and it's being fulfilled among you today. See here's something so profound about this is that the Feast of Tabernacles, as I was mentioned, was to commemorate God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. And something that happened in the wilderness multiple times, they would come and there was no water. And they would say, Lord, how are you going to provide? Moses would, especially Moses, he was, he was an anxious guy. He's got all these people out there, they're trusting in him, there's no water. He's saying, God, what are you going to do? And he says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to crack open a rock. I want you to crack open a rock. And he would do it, and it says that waters would flood out from this this rock miraculously. And so the, the rock was the source, but here's the thing. That rock had to be cracked open first. It had to be broken before it could be the source first. And Jesus is telling them, I am the rock that will be broken open for you. But when I am broken open, I will become a river of living water unto you. And this is specifically what he's telling them in this text. And John even references it. He says in verse 39, he says, by this he meant, so John's clarifying, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Remember at the beginning, Jesus said, it's not my time to be glorified yet. It's not my time to be glorified. Well, when was that time? It was when he was put up on the cross, when his body was broken, when his blood was spilled for us. That is when he reached his final glorification. So John is saying there will come a time when the rock will be broken, and from that will flow rivers of living water to anyone who will come and receive him. Now, this is the question I want to ask to you as we close here. Do we drink just once? Do we drink just once? If you recall in John chapter 4, Jesus comes upon a woman at a well. And while he's at this, this well, he's having this, this conversation with this woman. Uh, she asks him, he offers water to her. And she says, how are you going to get this water? You don't even have, a, you don't have a, a pail or anything to get it. And and basically, she finally gets this realization that, oh, he's not talking about the water in this well. He's talking about something different. And she says, I want this water so that I won't have to come back to this, this well anymore. And I've always thought to myself, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would be teaching that you only need to drink of him once and never have to drink of him again. That doesn't make sense because that's, that, at that point, is promoting just a one-and-done transaction with Jesus. But we know Jesus wants to walk with us every single day of our lives. But I think that that Samaritan woman was on to something, though, because she said, if, if I get what you're offering me, then I won't need this well anymore. And I think that what Jesus is really saying is that there's wells that you've been going to as your source that I want to put out of commission. I want to put those wells out of commission, and I want to redirect your attention to the well of everlasting life that will never run dry, so that day and day and day again, you will come to me as the source and not the well that you have been going to, Would you stand to your feet with me? As I was preparing for this, I felt the Lord gave me a very specific word for you all today. And as we've talked about Jesus being the source of eternal life, I just got this phrase of old wells that he wants to close up in your lives. And what these wells are, these are sources that you have gone to in the past. How many of you know that wells, you have to dig it out? You actually have to dig out the well yourself. You have to make a way down to that source. And that's something that we do as humans, but the problem is we make wells in the wrong places sometimes. We go through times in our lives that are difficult and and, and we're looking for something because we're thirsting, and so we dig out a well, but we do it in the wrong place. We turn to the wrong sources. We turn to the wrong things online. We turn to the wrong people saying, Would you give me what I need to fix this? And it never satisfies. That's why we're still thirsty in the end. And I believe the Lord wants us to hear his call today, which is, He wants to kick dirt into that well of your life. And he wants to kick so much dirt into that well that it becomes full and inoperable. So that you can never go back to it again. And he wants to become the source of your life. And so if you would, I just want you to bow your head, stay, and close your eyes for a moment. If that's something that you resonate with, and I'm not just talking specifically about salvation of your soul... What I'm talking about is, I'm even talking about addictions. I'm talking about things that have been vices in your life. I'm talking about unhealthy patterns in your lives. No one here is going to know what that is. No one's even looking right now. But I believe there's grace in the room today. If that is you, I just want you to slip up a hand right now. If you know, there's wells that I've been going to that God has not sanctioned. He has not ordained those wells, and I want them closed up in my life. If that's you, I just want you to, you can give me even a half hand. That's totally fine. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just a few more moments here. Let's not let this moment pass. Okay, you can put your hands down. Let me pray over you right now. I just want you to know that the grace of the Lord is in the room right now. And you, by putting your hand up, was a step of faith of you saying, Lord, I want this. Lord, I want this. So let me pray over you right now, and I want you to join me in your heart right now in faith that the Lord is going to do what he said he will do. He is a one-source God, and he's in the business of closing down other sources. So right now, Jesus, we just come before you. We thank you that you are the source of eternal life, and there is no other. Lord, we glory in that right now we glory in that right now that we get to come together under the banner that says King Jesus. It says King Jesus, the name that stands above every other name there is no other name that will ever rival your name Jesus. And Lord we thank you for your goodness that you care for us as your sheep, as your people you take good care for us and part of that care is that you water the flock You water the flock. So, Lord, I pray over each person today that took a step of faith to say, Yeah, there's wells I've been going to, but I want them shut up in my life now. Jesus, I ask that you would show them, Lord, give them revelation that you are the only source in their life. Jesus, I even sense right now the Lord doesn't want to just remove. He wants to replace in your life. It's not just about removing the old well. He wants to replace it so that you know that he is the the source, that you will learn to go to him in those times of need. Lord, would you replace those wells today? Become the source, the only source in their lives. We thank you for your work, and we pray all of this in your wonderful, powerful name, Jesus. Amen thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And if you did, make sure to share it and subscribe to stay up to date with all of our new messages. Thanks for listening. God bless.